to Talking Musicology, a bi-monthly podcast focusing on recent publications and issues in the field of musicology. I'm Liam Cagney and I'm here as ever with Stephen Graham. Hello. The ethnologist Francis Lafleche, born 1857, died 1932, published widely on Native American society and culture. Lafleche occupies what might be seen as an ideal position for an ethnologist. Lafleche's father was the last chief of the Omaha tribe and ensured that growing up, Lafleche participated in traditional Omaha ceremonies. Whilst at the same time, Lafleche, who also had French ancestry, was educated at a boarding school and subsequently obtained higher education at the George Washington University Law School. He then went on to work with the Smithsonian Institution as an ethnologist specialising on the Omaha and Osage Nation tribes. As Katie Graber writes, Lafleche was Quote, in so many ways, deeply insider and outsider to both the native and European American worlds around him, end of quote. Lafleche is an exemplary case of a scholar who had the privilege to be able to write from a point of view transcending the so-called emic and etic division, to put it in a very rough way, a distinction in field research between writing from within a social group and writing from outside it. What then can we learn from Lafleche's writings? Katie Graber's article, Francis Lafleche and Ethnography, Writing Power Critique, published in the winter 2016 issue of Ethnomusicology, uses a survey of Lafleche's various writings to present an analysis of Lafleche's place in history and the demands he continues to place on his readers, as she puts it. One interest in Lafleche's work is that he engaged in different types of writing. He published initial anthropological work in the Smithsonian's Bureau of Ethnology, both in collaboration and under his own name, and then later wrote a massive amount on the Osage tribe. In a different register, he wrote an autobiographical account of his boarding school years, The Middle Five, published in 1900. And in a different register again, between 1900 and 1910, he wrote many fictional short stories. Ethnology, autobiography, fiction. Graeber's article focuses on these different types of written output, presenting analyses of each of them in turn. Graeber concludes that, quote, in subtle but striking ways, Lafleche does not write for the white outsider and critiques the underpinnings of anthropological projects. End of quote. Moreover, she continues, Lafleche's lifelong negotiations with these and other issues have much to teach us today about being scholars. I present my description, she writes, not as a definitive reading of Lafleche's various genres of writing, but as an interpretation that can speak to us about what it means to read, write, and engage our disciplinary structures." End of quote. In a way, Graeber is using Lafleche as a way of thinking through some fundamental issues in what it means to be an ethnologist. This is a pertinent exercise at a time when some within musicology are asking whether we are all in fact now ethnomusicologists, and I refer here to the statement, we're all ethnomusicologists now, made by Nicholas Cook in a 2008 article which in turn provided the starting point for a recent debate at City University of London with contributions from musicologists like Laden Nushin, Michael Spitzer and Ian Pace. And such existential questioning of ethnology is also of wider moment given the headlines that have recently been made in relation to separate cases of ethnologists Sudhir Venkatesh and Alice Goffman, each of whose work has aroused some controversy in the public sphere, which we might get around to discussing later. So in beginning to unpack Katie Graeber's article, Francis Lafleche and Ethnography, Writing, Power and Critique. Stephen, what stood out in this article for you in particular? Um, well, a lot of things stood out. I was very impressed by this piece, by its clarity, by its 
force and by the kind of complexity of the positions that she ends up taking. Um, I had one or two kind of reservations or concerns, but these are very minor, I think, in the face of what is a very robust and interesting scholarly achievement. I especially appreciated the way in which she took a kind of a patient uh, approach, picking apart different aspects of La Flesche's work and life, and then laying out very kind of clear and compelling conclusions about how we might read those episodes and how we might read that that work. What about you? What did you make of it? I agreed that it was very coherent and informative um, as a survey of La Flesche's career and output. And uh, for me, these kind of periodic views of the bases of some of our disciplines and um, their their basic assumptions are always worthwhile, uh, especially when they're done with this degree of clarity. However, I kind of, I didn't feel like the conclusions, the eventual conclusions were much more informative than the basic assumptions at the beginning of the article. Um, at, the, at the beginning of the article, Graeber lays out her stall and says how she, she thinks that this is an exemplary case and that we can learn about how to do ethnology uh, by studying it. But then by the end of the article, I didn't really feel like I had learned too much more. That's an interesting point of view because obviously often people criticize scholarship for doing that very circular thing of starting with a premise and then moving towards a conclusion which looks like um, a kind of an updating and expansion on the premise but in actual fact it's just a restatement of the premise in different terms now to me in certain kinds of research that's not necessarily a problem because if you're doing essentially armchair research which this article is so it doesn't involve empirical work it doesn't involve what's often called uh, human centered research. Uh, so she's not gone out and spoken to people, she's not done surveys, etc. She's sat at home, read some texts, and then written about them. To me, that kind of research isn't necessarily constrained by having a kind of a circular motion, because it seems that your arguments and your positions are often formed by the time you sit down to write the piece. So therefore, when you do your abstract, when you start out on this article, it's I often find it's a kind of a false, it's a kind of a false position to, to leave the, to kind of bury the lead, if you like. So, in other words, to suggest some questions that you might end up answering when you already have the answers to those questions. So, I'm not sure if that, if that's what your your criticism was getting at. But, but to me, to me, what she does is she lays out some premises. She ends up in the same place that those premises kind of set out at the, at the beginning but to me it's a slightly deeper we get we 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 end up with a deeper sense of what's kind of implied and contained in those premises um i suppose we should give a, maybe a little bit more of an overview um to that degree about how this uh, article is arranged um so as i mentioned in in my introduction uh, graber initially begins with lafleche's uh, background as an anthropologist and uh, initial forays in that field then goes on to look at La is fiction writing and autobiography. I kind of felt, I guess, that the conclusions could have kind of cross-compared these different registers a little bit more in, in I don't know, taking a, a bit of a risk in, in con- making some conclusions about narrativity and representation and, and that type of thing. As it is, there is a lot of information there about LaFleche's contributions, but I felt that the conclusions maybe were a little bit too safe 
Um, it was summed up to some degree in, in the discussion of Lafleche's short stories and fiction. It is a fascinating case for me, somebody who engaged on all these different registers in scholarship and in literature, um, because I'm somebody who, well, personally, I try to, to do the same, and I know you do too. Um, but just to take the example of fiction, Graeber shows how Lafleche started writing many short stories, which were about um, Native American life and uh, the emerging uh, nation state in America, I suppose you could say. She concludes that his inability to finish most of these short stories perhaps points to a refusal um, to fall within the stable categories of Western thought, let's say. Um, she writes, quote, The inability to capture static identities in these stories was not the failing of Francis Lefesh, but was rather the reality of human experience that diverges from the constraints of written language and representation, end of quote. Um, for me, this is not really satisfactory because uh, fiction for me and this type of narrative voice is actively engaged in inventing identity and in, I don't know, multiplying identity and so on. And, and I think that this might have been a more worthwhile way of looking at it. Yeah, I should lay my cards on the table a bit more here. I'm, I was looking at this article from the perspective of an Irish person who's, you know, Got a, got a bit of a background in, in having done a degree in English and having learned a lot about post-colonial studies in that context. And like a book like Declan Kybird's Inventing Ireland, which is about how Ireland invent or Irish writers invented Irish national identity in the late 19th century and early 20th century through literature and through the narrative voice, but often often in contradistinction to the imperial identity, which was itself something that was maybe, you know, not as stable as it seemed to be. And this kind of really interesting dialectic between the native uh, search for, for a type of self-identity and that, that of the, the imperial forces around it. And I kind of read uh, Graeber's uh, account within these terms, and I would have been more interested then from that point of view to, well, I guess maybe to have a bit more post-colonial theory here and not if, she, if she's pointing out that uh, the reality of human experience doesn't fit into these stable identities, I think it's kind of going beyond just ethnology or meta-ethnology and it's going into questions from post-colonial identity and how identity gets formed. I think that bringing in some of these concepts, um, whilst you can't expect somebody to do everything, would have helped to produce more insightful conclusions. Mm -hmm. Do you, I felt that, that those kinds of ideas were running through some of the key passages in this article. Like, for example, when she talks in that section on short stories about how there is a short story of his which, which, which too firmly presents the opposition of supposedly native identities versus supposedly white identities um, in someone's life, in, in this Robert Merriman figure's life, uh, who the story is about. And she, she says that actually those two identities are obviously much less stable than the story suggests and that ring calls back to a point she had made earlier on about the ways we understand through Lafleche's ethnographic work especially but also his his writing about his time in boarding school that identity is never boxed off in the way that we sometimes see it being and instead through his writing on for example when he was at school and he enjoyed singing western songs he had positive experience up to a point but also struggled with some of the constraints that were put on him as a native american 
I, I feel like she gives us without without yeah you're right without necessarily bringing the kind of theoretical armature of post-colonialism to to the table I feel like she gives us a sense of those things being kind of operational here I was very interested in the initial section of the essay where I suppose to paint some context Graeber goes into some of the history of the formation of institutions such as um Oh, wait a minute, where is it again? The Bureau of, of Ethnology, is it? Yeah, the Bureau of, of Ethnology. And uh, she makes the point that these efforts uh, in research came from state, essentially. And she, she mentions that Harvard, for example, didn't have a graduate ethno, sorry, a graduate anthropology program until the last decade of the 1800s. Um, the Smithsonian Museum, the Geological Surveys, and the Bureau of Ethnology were all organizations of the United States government. Um, and she writes, quote, governmental institutions use the production of knowledge to support the production of the nation and U.S. American identity, end of quote. And there's a lot more detail in in, in there about uh, about this history and which is very much relevant, I think, for, for people doing this, this musicological research. Maybe this expresses my biases to some degree and that I find this historia, historiographical kind of stuff uh, stronger. And um, yeah, that that was kind of uh, the angle that really one of the angles that interested me more. Yeah, I mean, I agree that I think that that first section, which is I think the longest of the of the article, it takes up about half the article as far as I remember. To me, that was the strongest section of the article. Although, as I said, I, I enjoyed the whole article. Um, but but yeah, both for that detail and for the kind of sophistication of the points she ends up making. So just to read a couple of sentences from the conclusion to that section on the, this kind of framework of institutions through which La Flesch and his collaborators, Alice Fletcher and um, Dorsey, were working. She says, rather than thinking of Francis La Flesch as entombed in the ceremonies of Dorsey's work, so Dorsey was one of the first people to incorporate La Flesch's perspective into ethnographic writings, um, so rather than thinking of La Flesch as entombed in the ceremonies of Dorsey's work in the 1880s, we can read the trajectory of his life and the beginning of his development as an ethnographer. In contrast to Powell and others' assumptions about assimilation and acculturation as an inevitable and totalizing process, we see La Flesch's career and racial identity as a series of decisions, self-assertions, compromises and advocacy. La Flesch and other Native Americans also had to define themselves in the face of a multiplicity of worldviews and practices. These negotiations happen both in the abstract and in material, sometimes violent confrontations." End quote. So that, that conclusion seems to me to draw together both the kind of hard data, if you like, of her discussion of the institutions and how they controlled information and positioned research as a kind of a regulatory device to, to kind of to speak in the language of kind of post-colonialism, I guess, to kind of discipline bodies and control bodies and legitimate uh, violence, state violence. Um, she, yes, yeah, she combines that kind of hard material with a kind of a theoretical point of view here in a in a very compelling way to me. Later parts of the article become more textual, I guess, because they're about they're a kind of a literary criticism informed by post-colonial theory and ethnographic theory on his writings, so that they. They assume a kind of a different voice, I guess. No, I think you bring up a good point there. You mentioned that they are literary criticism to some degree. And I, I agreed. And one of the things I found really interesting about this article was that although it's published in ethnomusicology and uh, the theme is about uh, 
an ethnologist, uh, it has these different disciplinary kind of things going on, literary criticism, institutional history, and it's not, I mean, it's not really an ethnomusicology article, is it? Well, it's interesting to ask that question, isn't it? Because in its methods, it's not necessarily an, a, a distinctly ethnomusicological piece, although in its subject it is, clearly. So, I, yeah, I mean, I guess we're, we're alighting upon the, the blurred boundaries between musicological disciplines, aren't we? Yeah, and I think it's kind of in fitting with um, some of what Graeber says about La Flesh, and she's talking about hybridity. We spoke about hybridity in the last podcast, and the, she's she's kind of looking at La Flesh from that point of view, and she herself is engaged in this sort of hard to pin down um, practice, which is yeah, it, it's of the moment for me, and it's quite interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's it seems to be kind of on ethnomusicology rather than of ethnomusicology in a, in a strange in a strange way i think in that in that from that point of view as i said it, i think it's 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 very interesting and there, there's a lot of good work here also though if one is venturing into historiography so i think it's advisable maybe to acknowledge that and to to deal with some of the um, traditional issues in historiography so for example Something I was a little bit uncomfortable about here was this use of La Flesh as an example, um, kind of acting out contemporary concerns. So there's a sort of project, projection happening here where, um, to be reductive about it, identity politics are to some degree being projected onto La Flesh. In a, yeah, invalidated. I mean, I was recently reading this old book by Mark Bloch called The Historian's Craft. He was an historian at the Annales School and uh, it deals with a lot of fundamental kind of issues in writing history. And uh, one part that I read recently was about anachronism and how careful one has to be in projecting concepts backwards in time in, in this way. The example he uses is that, that you wouldn't talk about the bourgeoisie in relation to the Roman Empire, although there might be a class of people which roughly corresponds to it um, and so here I kind of find it problematic that some of our own um, issues are being uh, projected onto an historical uh, figure and that that's maybe not being acknowledged that that's happening. Yeah I mean this was so I mentioned earlier I had one or two small reservations and this was precisely one of them um, I, for me again not to kind of harp on the point but these these issues to me are natural kind of byproducts of a piece which is ambitious and broad and expansive and makes makes some interesting claims so i think any if you close read any scholarly piece worth its salt without being kind of mealy-mouthed about it um i think there probably will be some criticisms that you can mount against it and i think for me this is one of the criticisms that is possible to mount against this article so i want to kind of echo what you were saying without necessarily um, going in the whole way. So yeah, when I when I read something like her description early on in the in the article about of Dorsey versus Fletcher versus La Flesh and their distinct approaches to ethnographic writing, where Dorsey in in her kind of language is writing kind of cold but clear scientific work, Fletcher draws her in through her kind of deliberate assuming of a, of an outsider's perspective, and La Flesh challenges her with 
all these things we've been talking about, the complexity of the subject position that he occupies and the complexity of the choices he makes in his writing. For me, that, that read as what you might call, I guess, presentism or what you call anachronism. Um, so mm-hmm. projecting contemporary biases and values onto the past, which is the only lens through which we can see the past. But I think there might have been just a degree more of self-consciousness about that because there is, to me, a too too tidy a circle drawn here between La Flesh and between the author, or rather between um, the La Flesh as a historical actor and the kind of premises and values of the present, which he very, very neatly occupies and and kind of uh, endorses, I guess, through his through his very modern hybrid position. So in in some ways he he becomes a kind of a, a, a kind of an act historical subject because he's presenting to the contemporary world in the past, if you see what I mean. Mm-hmm. So he becomes used almost kind of instrumentalized as a kind of a validation of contemporary values. But, but the question is though, it yes, I agree with that. And of course, as I said, you know, we can only ever project onto the past through concerns of the present. So it's not as if it would be wrong, you know. I, I was also reading an interesting historical text. I happened to have read something a couple of days ago by Carl Dahlhaus, Neo Romanticism, a short, a short piece, and he he spends the first couple of pages in that article talking about historical method, and he he talks about the the way in which if we're going to construct historical accounts of a period, we should not just project back through fashionable concerns of the present so for example he's writing about the 19th century and he's saying it would be wrong simply to do a kind of a structural history of that period um, as if as if contemporary concerns of that time did not inform musical activity and did not inform the kind of did not motivate that culture so he says we should pay attention to things like biography great figures history all that sort of stuff expressive theories of aesthetics which would put biography in the kind of center of how we might interpret musical works so his point is simply that in looking back at that time we we would do well to combine our own concerns with things that were current at that in that period we're examining and i think in this article to get back to katie graber i think that she does that to a certain extent but as we've been kind of saying in in our in our kind of extended way is that maybe she leans a bit too much towards the modern perspective. I'm not sure. Um, I'm not sure either. I mean, I, I do agree with you that this is an, an excellent article. And what you just said uh, uh, from Dallas is very interesting. For me, it kind of uh, brings up the sort of, uh, I don't know, the, the close relationship and concerns between historiography and sociology or, or ethnology about speaking about something and how much of it is is projection and and speaking for and a representational speech and speech from within and, and so on. That echoes the point she's making about the flesh, inside and outside. She herself is occupying outside, but speaking to an inside. Mm-hmm. No, th- th- this is yeah. That's that's what I mean. So some of the same issues are are, are common. Yeah, I, I, it would have been interesting to get a bit more of self-reflection on methodology. Um, perhaps that's just us speaking as 
as scholars, I guess, and who were interested in these ideas of kind of conceptualizing practice, I guess, scholarly practice. So I would like maybe a bit of that. I also, um, just to again get back to get back to the article a little bit, bit more directly, I was wondering about, you know, she talks about ethnography and the 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 kind of normal practice of ethnography and how La Flesh contrasts with that. Now she, of course, she would not have had room to make her point in any more of an expansive way. And I guess she's relying on reader knowledge and competence in the discipline and in the kind of literature of ethnography to to understand and to be able to draw contrast between the normal position and then what someone like La Flesh is doing. But speaking as, I guess, partially an outsider to this context, not necessarily as a sociologist, for example, or as an anthropologist, but rather as a musicologist who definitely has done some work in, in human-centered research and has done some empirical work, but and also has to assess work all the time, which is claiming to be ethnography, for example, student work. So very, I'm very kind of interested in these debates. So I'm not necessarily a full outsider, but I'm to some degree an outsider because I wouldn't class myself uh, as an ethnomusicologist or as a anthropologist. So therefore, maybe again, it's it's my own kind of desires, but I would have liked a little bit more fleshing out of the contrasts. What do you think? Um, yeah, I agree. I mean, that this is you can't expect an article to do everything, of course. But um, yeah, I guess we're we're just sort of looking at it from the point of view of um, uh, what the article says about where the discipline is at at the moment and uh, how it might have better summed up some of these things. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think it succeeds very, very strongly in doing what it's allowed to do in terms of giving us a very thick sense of what La Flesh was up to and how what kind of subject position he occupied, how power worked in his period, how disciplines were forming based on regulatory practices, um, you know, so I appreciate all that. I appreciate the thick description. I appreciate the, I guess, the, what you might call the Foucauldian analysis of power. I appreciate her conclusions about La Flesh as a, what, what we've said as a kind of a modern figure who embodies kind of hybridity and who, who embodies slippages between identity categories. So I appreciate all that. So I'm worried, I'm, I am slightly concerned now that I'm criticizing her on the basis of what the article is not rather than what it is. And that's always a kind of a slippery slope, I guess. Had you ever heard of Francis Lafleche? No, I, I confess I hadn't, but I'm not an ethnomusicologist and uh, I guess maybe that's something to do with it. What about you? No, I hadn't. I was I was intrigued to see if, if you had because I, I was coming to this completely blind and I don't know whether that's whether that's giving away our complete ignorance, but um, of co- I don't think it is necessarily because as she says, he's he's a kind of a marginal figure, it seems. It seems as if his work has been marginalized to a certain extent. And of course, she wants to argue that that is because it doesn't fall into simple. She says, Garrick Bailey argues that Lafleche's studies have faded into obscurity in part because his style of presentation rendered the data almost incomprehensible. So this is to do with his studies, his later studies of the Osage tribe comprising a total of over 2000 pages and things like there's many hundreds of pages which separate different translations of specific songs and so on. So it's not parsed into very simple, accessible, formalized structures and frameworks. And one of her points, I guess, is that that reflects its ambition and its kind of challenge to the ethnographic enterprise. And it seems to me that she's suggesting maybe this is how it failed as ethnography in a sense, but maybe also succeeded as cultural narrative or as knowledge in some way. So, so in any, so in any case, I yeah, I hadn't heard of him, so it was all completely new to me. Yeah, I I did um, 
think when I was reading that passage that the suggestion was maybe that he hadn't written so well. So he, from a scholarly point of view, he hadn't organized the information in, in a particularly readable way that this, this contributed to the neglect of his extensive uh, research. Uh, but that's, yeah, it make, I hadn't really thought that maybe uh, Le Flesh was so so ignored, but if that is the case, then it gives a different aspect to Graeber's article, which kind of makes it then sort of like revisiting the canon yeah. of, uh, yeah, of, yeah. Of, of musicology to some degree. Which which fits in with the whole perspective here, as we've been saying, it's the kind of a the post-colonial attempt to frame the past in terms of very modern concerns, which is a perfectly valid thing to do. It also, as we were just talking there, I was thinking of Lafleche as a kind of a, a modernist figure, um, because he seems in an Adorno way to be challenging formal structures of Western thought, and he also seems to be non-systematizable in a sense, and he also seems to be perhaps occupying what we might call the kind of primitivist position, which off, which fascinated the modernists, of course. So I wonder if you could do a little study of him as a, a kind of a modernist figure. It might be interesting. Intriguing, yeah. Uh, might be a, a good way of revisiting uh, his publications. Yeah. Um, I, I just had one more thing actually I wanted to talk about with this, and I think we've we've kind of you've been speaking about it a bit, and I've been speaking about it a bit, but. I mean, I came to this article and I was interested in this article because of some of the debates you alluded to at the beginning about the nature of ethnography and its position within the musicological discipline. And um, so what did, did this article say anything for you to that debate? It kind of hinted at it, but without really getting there. I, I've already said, I think, uh, near the start that the fact that Lafleche wrote in these different registers and Graeber shows very helpfully and very insightfully how he did so um it, it brings some of this in and uh from that point of view yeah i was thinking for example of sudir vunkatesh's floating city this this recent publication which uh, venkatesh said he could not um it just couldn't be published in an academic context um it was it's a book about the sort of New York City underworld, prostitutes, drug dealers, and this kind of thing, where he, I think he's a professor at Columbia, um, spent several years uh, kind of in this world and getting involved in it and so on. But with with, reading, with an ethnographic kind of yeah goal yeah with in an mind. Ethno, exactly yeah so he's taking like field notes the whole time while he's engaged in these scenes and he's, you know, in a brothel or with drug dealers or whatever. Um, but eventually he felt like he couldn't publish it as a scholarly work and it was published and reviewed in like The Guardian and New York Times and that kind of thing. It aroused some controversies. People were saying that he'd made some of it up. But um, I think there's always going to be, when, when you're kind of pushing the boat out with this type of thing, there's always going to be an element of fiction. It's, it is, it's always going to be fabricated to some degree. And I would even say that, venture to say it might be the case with more strictly ethnographical or academic writings, that in, in telling and, and in reciting like a history or a story, there's always there's always an element of fabrication. And what about you? Did you think this article says any anything particular that interested you about ethnography? Well, it's I guess Le Flesh is having not known his work, I was completely intrigued by uh, the style of his writing, at least the glimpses of what we get through this, and I, and I want to go and investigate it further, actually, because it it does seem to suggest interesting, it does seem to say interesting things to that insider outsider 
boundary that we often think about and that is often kind of discussed when people talk about the limitations of ethnography and about the kind of violences that I guess are done as soon as we as soon as we represent subjects especially vulnerable subjects in language because language automatically distances and separates I guess and is a form of alienation in a strange way uh, yeah run, running through the whole enterprise of ethnography as with scholarship in general is the idea that we're constructing narratives out of tissues of I guess fact and fiction and its status as a social scientific enterprise is a valid one to me but it obviously often gets kind of overstated and often gets it has to kind of shoulder the weight of a lot of light scholarly you mean like the tension between the narrative voice and then the actual data or the the research that's been done mm -hmm. yeah i mean I'm, I'm just interested in the way that lafleche's work seems to again to speak in slight cliches but to kind of problematize inside and outside but of course inside and outside are always problems you know they're, they're never stable and in you know there was the you referenced at the start but the alice goffman controversy recently where she was she wrote this book about um inner city youth <laughs> was such a ridiculous term but she wrote a book about crime in philadelphia and she spends a lot of time with with people um committing crimes and kind of socially disadvantaged people and her book comes out and then there is the same kind of criticism level at it as as the book you were just mentioning floating city whereby people thought it was fabricated people thought it was fictional and then she couldn't of course she couldn't mount a defense against that in some senses because she had destroyed her notebooks in order to protect her her kind of informants and um, so this is always this very complicated swirl of um, proof and evidence when we think about human-centered research when it's based in narrative and based in dialogue rather than based in supposedly objective data as other disciplines might be. So this Lafleche's work seems to me to occupy an interesting position within that. But it also seems to me, so it tells us about maybe the limitations and problems, but it also tells us about the benefits of this kind of research and the benefits of ethnography as one form of social measurements, one kind of invaluable form of social measurement, which is very difficult to match and very difficult to supplant, I guess. So, you know, we've had I've had this debate with with many people, and there's many people who this is not a, 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 a groundbreaking position to occupy. But of course, I just think that it's a valid form of evidence, and combined with other forms of analysis like theory, like thinking, critical thinking, and so on, it seems to be a very very worthwhile endeavor i like what you're saying about language is alienation like i think that for me uh, as somebody who's by no means an expert in this area it's one of the one of the interesting methodological aspects of ethnography and how it relates to let's say lit literature or fiction um literature in a way engages with this alienation in a way like they say a uh, uh, making strange of the world, uh, present, presenting things in a slightly alien, slightly different way. And it's, a, it's I, I guess you could suggest that what's what's an advantage with literature is a problem with ethnography then, when the alien alienation kind of uh, or fabricative effect comes into ethnography, it's it's criticized and, and attacked at times as being non-objective. I'm kind of interested in that tension it's the same component in one area in fiction is is privileged it's 
you know, kind of attacked or, or more problematic within uh, scholarship. Well, it's very interesting because, yeah, uh, literature at its core, I guess, is a kind of an estrange- estrangement, not just, you know, I think there's a famous definition of science fiction as cognitive estra- estrangement. But I think that goes for literature on the whole. But of course, it seems in some senses, again, speaking partially as an outsider, ethnography is directly doing the opposite, I guess. It's making, well, if, if literature is about cognitive estrangement, I guess ethnography's goal might be cognitive destrangement, if you like. Um, and so, so therefore, as you say, there, there's a massively fascinating tension running through the whole discipline, which seems to be a productive source of tension in, in Lafleche's work, actually. Again, I think it's something that's shared with uh, historiography. If you go like right back to the beginning, obviously, if, like most people will know, Herodotus is called the father of history and the father of lies at the same time. And this is tension about whether speaking is representation or speaking is yeah making strange. And I guess every statement contains both. And now we'll move to research in the rounds, our regular feature where we survey recent publications in the field of musicology. I'm going to start off this episode. Um, I'm not going to survey a recent publication, but instead I'm going to mention a very interesting looking conference, which connects with some of the themes we have been discussing in this episode. The conference is Musicology in the Age of Post-Globalization. It's going to run in New York City in April of next year, 2018. The deadline for proposals is the 1st of June, 2017. Um, And it's a conference which is response to the work of Barry S. Brook, who, as they say in the announcement, was a musicologist with a global vision who lived and worked both in New York and in Paris. His scholarly interests were broad. His research covered secular music from the Renaissance, as well as music iconography, the social history music, and aesthetics. In later years, he became fascinated with ethnomusicology, his interest in the control of music, sources and resources, together with his vision of a global research community and the use of computers for humanities, research led him to found um, Realm and to co-found uh, Repertoire International d'Iconographie Musicale, along with many other publications and series. So this seems to be a very interesting conference, which it invites submissions on themes like applied ethnomusicology, breaking the musicology-ethnomusicology divide, ethnomusicology and economics, ethnomusicology and political systems, ethnomusicology and post-colonialism. And in each of those themes, the word ethnomusicology is separated by a forward slash after ethno. So there seems to be a very interesting connection to some of the things we've been talking about today and some of the blurred boundaries. So that should be an interesting conference. I don't think I'll make it to New York for it, but nevertheless, it looks interesting. That does indeed sound interesting. For my contribution, I wanted to highlight a recent publication by Tim Rutherford Johnson. It's his book, Music After the Fall, Modern Composition and Culture Since 1989. Uh, Many of our listeners will probably know that Rutherford Johnson has for several years been cataloging, surveying, reviewing and analysing um, the field of new music or contemporary music or whatever you want to call it. And this book, although I can't say very much about it because I'm actually reviewing it for a gramophone, this book undoubtedly looks like a, it's going to be an important one. Rutherford Johnson breaks his analysis down under kind of overarching themes or terms like fluidity, mobility, superabundance, loss and recovery. And in doing so, um, creates, I guess, what you might call, Stephen, a a mapping of uh, new music since 1989. Uh, You have been a colleague of Rutherford Johnson's, and I think you went to a seminar recently. 
Yeah, he's yeah he's a friend of mine, and we've been working on a book project for a few years actually, which was dormant for a while and now seems to have reanimated itself. So that's exciting, but that's a whole separate conversation. Uh, yeah, I went to see him introduce this book at, at the book launch a couple of days ago, and he spoke just generally about some of the themes of the book, and it was very interesting. He drew some kind of large connections, connections of the type that I like, even though they sometimes paint things with a broad brush and a little bit of a blunt brush, but that's necessary when you take such a, a God's eye view of a whole time period. So he's looking at 20, well now 28 years of music and culture and trying to draw things together in, and map them, like you say, I don't, I don't think he uses that verb, uh, trying to map them in some cohesive way. So he, without necessarily belaboring the contents, he, he's paying attention to all sorts of interesting movements and figures. In the talk the other day, he mentioned and played examples from composers like Cassandra Miller, Linda Catlin-Smith, um, Michael Pizarro, Manfred Werder, and, and other people. So he's paying attention to music which has received attention in the kind of new music sphere, but not necessarily broader uh, scholarly attention so I think it's very valuable in that sense and it's also interesting because it will be fascinating to see how he pulls these disparate things together into movements and into cohesive kind of scenes because that is I guess implied in the historiographical point of view that this book assumes. That's it for episode 7 of Talking Musicology many thanks indeed for listening and we'll catch you later. Bye.